The next most important thing is breaking down the narratives that individuals have about themselves. Mm-hmm. People often kind of come into practice and say, you know, I got this bad shoulder or I got this bad hip. And so it's good to identify those parts of the body that the individual has developed a negative relationship with. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. If you think about it, we use milk or milk substitutes all the time. They're the basis for our smoothies. We put them in our coffee in the morning. We use them in our breakfast and in tons of other recipes. If we're gonna use something that often, I think it is so important that we have the right product. Oat Canada is my go-to option for a dairy-free beverage. It tastes great, it's unbelievably creamy, and it boasts zero grams of sugar. It's non-GMO, vegan, glyphosate-free, and keto-friendly. I am a huge supporter of this company, of the people behind the company, and of their mission. So if you are looking for a dairy-free beverage to be your new go-to, I highly recommend you look for Oak Canada. Oak Canada is available at Costco, and you can check oakcanada.com for the latest updates on availability. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the podcast. This week on the podcast, I got the chance to speak with Dr. Ricky Singh, who is a chiropractor. He graduated from McMaster University with a degree in kinesiology and graduated from the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College as a doctor of chiropractic in 2014. Throughout his education, Ricky has focused his studies on understanding mechanisms of injury and how to optimize human movement. Ricky currently works with Athletics Canada as a member of their integrated support team. He has traveled the world with the Canadian track and field team and was selected to be part of the medical team for the 2017 World Championships in London. Ricky has consulted with Golf Canada as well as Hockey Canada and continues to work with elite level athletes in helping them reach their athletic potential. He currently has his own mobile therapy practice and operates primarily throughout the GTA. I was really excited to have Ricky on the podcast because he's a practitioner who I feel like I connect with very well, who I relate to very well, and I definitely trust a great deal. I would send any of my clients to Dr. Ricky, no question. He has such an integrated and holistic understanding of the body, and that really comes across in this episode as he explains his approach, as well as how his approach has evolved over the years. He has a background in strength and conditioning, which I always love because as a trainer, it's easiest for me to relate to a practitioner who has some background in training as well. So I really appreciate that about Dr. Rookie. Unfortunately, this interview was conducted over Zoom, and I apologize in advance, guys, because there are some points where the audio is a little shaky, but please, please, please try to get past that because the gems of knowledge 
the wealth of information that Dr. Ricky provides is well worth pushing through. I've already talked to him and hopefully sometime in the future, I can have him back on the podcast when we, we can have an in-person conversation because I just know that he has so much to offer. All right, without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ricky Singh. Hi, Ricky. Welcome to the How Do You Feel podcast. I am really excited to get the chance to speak with you today. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, Casey. Appreciate you having me. I always start off with a how do you feel question because the podcast is called How Do You Feel? So since you're a Cairo, and I think most people, their brain goes to thinking about manipulations or adjustments when they think of chiropractors, how do you feel about adjustments? Interestingly enough, at least in my practice, I try not to associate like a feeling or emotion towards a modality or therapy. How I look at a therapeutic tool is going to be based off of my bias, right? Like whether or not something works well with me, whether or not I can execute the tool well, whether or not I've had positive results with the tool, right? Chiropractic in general, like if we're speaking specifically about the adjustment, I've had success with particular adjustments, others not so much. And that's more of an indication of me as a practitioner. I try my best to be as objective as I can when I think about like therapy. And same thing as like for training. We ask that uh, trainers will often get that question, what's the best exercise for X or what's the best stretch for this? So I try to dissociate feelings from chiropractic in general. Cool. But overall, like I have a very positive outlook on, on therapy in general. Mm. Uh, like I feel positive about it as long as you're paired up with somebody who you, you know, you trust that comes highly recommended and you're, you're going to have a positive reaction in, in general. Mm-hmm. So I would say like, I feel pretty good about chiropractic in general. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. It's a good perspective to think about how much our bias and what we think is going to work and what we feel confident doing affects the eventual outcome. Like it's not always so black and white. And I love how you're saying that it's very much about the practitioner and the person in front of them as well as their relationship. So I think that's yeah. a, it's a cool perspective. It doesn't, um, it's not dogmatic which I appreciate. Yeah. There was a moment that happened, I think a couple of months ago when we were, we were having like a zoom chat with a couple of practitioners and uh, blood flow restriction had come up, the, the use of cuffs and all that. Mm-hmm. And then somebody had mentioned, you know, like um, I'm not a big fan. I don't like BFR. And uh, you know, I had, it was like, it's just a, a tool that has a therapeutic benefit. If you spin that narrative pretty quickly in front of a patient, and you tell somebody your own bias, then if they were to go out and hear about that modality, they already have a preconceived notion of it. And it has nothing to do with the effectiveness of it, but more so just the individual's bias. Mm-hmm. So being as objective with these things is, I think, important as professionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't really be a fan or not a fan of a tool. It's just how do you choose to use it? Right? Like yeah. inherently, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Exactly. Generally, like, why do you believe in chiropractic care? Why did you decide to become a chiropractor? So why I became a chiropractor mainly was because, and I had a pretty interesting, like, kind of career path. It was pretty straightforward. Like, I remember in grade, I think it was grade nine, we had to take career studies in civics. uh, And uh, there was, like, this MS-DOS that you put in your interests, and it'll kind of spit out a couple of different professions. And on that list was kinesiology. I don't think the hell is that. And it was like sports movement, training, and all these like buzzwords. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that sounds dope. 
So it was in that moment, I'm like, well, sports medicine kind of sounds like something I'd be interested in. Went to McMaster, I did four years there, wrote my MCAT because I kind of had this idea that I wanted to be a sports doctor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And after writing the MCAT once and like completely bombing it (laughs) and realizing that, you know, if I was to do the whole medical route, then I'd probably be like 35 before I graduated and started working. And I just, there's so many other things that I love doing in life, but aside from my career, that I know that it wasn't something that I wanted to devote everything to. And I think Mm -hmm. as a medical doctor, sometimes like, you know, for most medical doctors, you're having to commit to a lot. That wasn't something that I wanted. I took a year off after I graduated and I started working with the chiropractor. I was just working as like an assistant, physiologist essentially, which is basically an assistant. I never knew anything about chiropractic, but what was interesting was I got to see his lifestyle. Like he was an individual who owned multidisciplinary practice. He made his own, I mean, he made his own hours, even though he's working probably like 12 hours every single day because he was a business owner. But um, he was in fairly good control of his life and making a significant impact on his community. And he's really working well with individuals and changing lives. And I was like, man, this is all fantastic. And so at that point in time, he, I remember he even had a conversation with me about if I went to college and uh, I became a chiro, that I would have a job to come back to. So it was like I had job security on top of that. The rest is history. Good for you to know and understand the importance of work-life balance. I think some people launch down that medical career path and then they're 30 and they turn around and they're like, wow, my entire 20s was dedicated to studying and beginning my career, which it's a lot. So it's good that you knew that, that you were more than simply your career, right? I want to know what are some of those things that are important to you outside of work that made you kind of think that way? Growing up, I've had a general interest in a lot of different things. And to backtrack, there was one point that I was going to go to school for uh, sound engineering, video production, uh, video editing. Like, I mean, these are just things that I was interested in. I was really good with graphic design and splicing videos and making really funny video projects in high school. I just liked the idea of working on a project and seeing it come to fruition kind of thing at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also developed a strong interest for music throughout my university career, playing guitar. Now I have more of a love or desire to start singing, but uh, I started getting into like digital music production. Once upon a time, I actually had a, I built a music studio in my basement. My, my dad made a deal with me. He's like, if you build the entire basement, I'll fund your studio project that you want to get going as well. I'm like, this is dope. So I Googled how to build a basement. And in my head, I'm like, this is going to take me maybe three months, you know? Probably took me about two years. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, because, like, wow. I mean, the number of mistakes yeah. that we made, it was, like, two or three people trying to build a basement who were unexperienced, right? But anyway, through that journey, I just realized that there's a lot of things that I had a love for, uh, music production being one of them video production or just just like photography and uh now like uh, the golf is a strong interest that i have only as of the last like couple of months my mind has developed over the years just to be very curious about a lot of different things mm-hmm. so i know that like i'm not going to be someone who's going to be a specialist in one thing uh and this one individual named naval ravikan is a very smart guy with podcasts i listen to often he often says that uh, specialization is for insects uh, and uh, when I heard that, I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, I'm not an insect and I want to experience and explore all the facets of life. Um, so those are just a couple of examples of things that I'm interested in. 
Cool. I've been thinking a lot about this concept lately that we love to put ourselves in these boxes of like, for example, you could have thought I am a chiropractor and these are the things that a chiropractor is supposed to be interested in and supposed to spend their time doing. I don't know why our brains like to do that. We like to create these definitions of ourselves. I, and I've done that. I for sure like self-limited and like pulled back from things that I have interest in and I enjoy doing because it's like, well, that doesn't fit into my life right now and what it's supposed to look like. But I've started just, especially in COVID, just being like, no, that's silly. Like I can be musical and I can dance and also love science and train, you know, and like all these things. I think that we were meant to be so much more complex than sometimes we allow ourselves to be because we like to create these definitions that like make sense. Anyways, we're getting yeah, off definitely. on a tangent. Let's pull it back to chiropractic care. And this is interestingly a field that there's a lot of controversy surrounding. I guess because it's, con I mean, you can speak to this more, but I, my impression is because it's considered kind of like alternative medicine and not fully rooted in evidence-based science. Can you tell us about that and why, why there is such controversy surrounding the field? We can have a whole hour-long chat on just this one topic alone, but I'll try my best sure. to kind of summarize <laughs> it and just make it brief. The profession started with an individual named uh, like D.D. Palmer. He started chiropractic because the story goes, he gave an adjustment to an individual who was deaf at the time, and he gave him an adjustment, like an upper cervical adjustment, and the individual was able to hear all of a sudden. I believe it was hearing. I don't think it was, he was blind. Pretty sure it was hearing. Uh, this is something that I, like, I heard a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But anyways, he was kind of the father of chiropractic, and he created this philosophy that based off of the spinal alignment, all the nerves kind of flow through the spine, and based on his experience of adjusting this individual's neck, he thought that a vertebrae in the, in the spine was pinching on a nerve that was responsible for functionality for the ear. He released the pressure, and then all of a sudden the individual was able to hear. So he's like, this is fantastic. That means if you have diabetes, all I need to do is adjust like your thoracic spine because that's the area where the nerves from your pancreas get some kind of stimulation. So I can just stimulate your, pan your pancreas to secrete insulin by adjusting your spine and you can see the inherent flaws in this philosophy, right? If you have asthma, we're just going to give you a thoracic adjustment. If you have almost any organ type of problem, we're going to just adjust your spine. So that's how the philosophy of chiropractic kind of began. It was kind of like the, the foot on the hose theory that if there's something pinching a nerve, whatever the target organ is of that nerve, it's going to be affected negatively in terms of its function. Mm -hmm. And so through the evolution of, this, of the profession, now what we have is kind of like a, a divergence happening. There are still some individuals who believe in the philosophy of chiropractors. They're typically referred to as straight chiropractors. And then there's mixers. Mixers are the, the individuals who understand and acknowledge that adjusting or spinal manipulation has value or benefit to it. We just don't have much weight onto it. Like it's just mm -hmm. a therapeutic tool. It's mm -hmm. not be all end all. And so mixers will, will tend to be classified as like evidence-based practitioners who are trying to use evidence to help guide the practice. Now, the straight chiropractors will often argue that they also use evidence. They just cherry pick their narrative fit. But the controversy exists because there's kind of that dichotomy that a lot of other manual therapy professions don't really have. Mm -hmm. um, like most manual therapists or, or manual therapy professions, there's a general understanding of how to practice. 
but in chiropractic breaks this philosophical difference between the one group of people looking at the adjustment as kind of like almost personifying it as this this like powerful tool that's the be all end all and this other group that's like no nah, man it's just like massage it's just like mobilization it's just like exercise it's, it's a tool so that's why the controversy exists within the profession and then from a consumer standpoint the most criticized and the most fearful thing that people kind of put chiropractors into is the, the risk of a stroke mm -hmm. individuals have had a stroke because of cervical manipulation on a table and that's going to obviously get a lot of people's attention right yeah. so like if you're coming in for neck pain you get an adjustment people are often like am i going to have a stroke and there's been a lot of research and and, and analysis of this topic and I don't think we fully understand exactly what's happening yet, but in terms of what we're educated on in, in school, the carotid arteries in the neck, they obviously, if you're having a stroke, then one of the arteries can be severed or you can have a blood clot and that just affects blood flow into the brain. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why that can happen is multifaceted. Typically speaking, one of the symptoms of having say, like a prolonged stroke is significant neck pain or headache that can just kind of come up out of nowhere. And so the argument is, is that these individuals experiencing this level of pain will then often seek out care. So they're already in the midst of having a stroke. Yeah. And then the chiropractor is like, well, let me just adjust your neck. They do an adjustment. And then the individual has a full-out stroke. So there is an inherent risk, but you have to do your due diligence to determine if the patient is a, is a good candidate for receiving a cervical manipulation. Mm -hmm. That's typically why there's so much controversy, because the medical system is like, well, if you have neck pain, don't get your neck adjusted because people have died of stroke. And chiropractors would say, well, no, it's perfectly safe to do. And the risk is about one in 10 million. <laughs> so it's like you have a one in 10 million risk of you having a, a stroke from a cervical manipulation, which is obviously very, very low. Tiny, probably you're more but likely to get struck by lightning or something. Like that's so tiny. Right. Yeah. But it's still an inherent risk nonetheless that we have to mm -hmm. communicate to our patients. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the controversy stems from this. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It makes total sense. Now, I'm going to assume that you consider yourself a mixer because we had an appointment yesterday and you didn't do one manipulation on me. So like how often and when do you use these kind of adjustments? You do cervical adjustments? I do. So it all kind of comes down to me determining what the individual needs at a given time. So uh, all that falls into like, the health history and the assessment that I do at the intake that I do with the patient. Mm -hmm. So when I, did, when I decide to do an assessment on someone, a lot of the things that I consider are the individual's past experience with chiropractic. If patients come in and say, hey, you know, I used to see a chiropractor and I've been having really good like, uh, responses to the adjustment, but now that chiro moved or I can't access that individual, so I'm here for the adjustment, then I'll... I'll do my best to include it as a part of the treatment plan, just so as long as there's no, nothing comes up in the assessment that would indicate that the individual should not get an adjustment, right? Mm -hmm. So, but typically speaking, when we use any kind of tool or modality, like I mentioned before, it has a lot to do with how confident you are in that tool, whether or not you've had positive results using that modality. And so for me, adjusting has been one of those things that, are, that uh, there are certain adjustments that I do well that I, I'd like to do. And so I'll often resort to those adjustments when I need to get a particular therapeutic benefit. Uh, but oftentimes I like to do soft tissue massage and actually spend time with the patient because that helps me develop trust just through that physical touch. 
before I do an adjustment. I'll resort first to do some level of massage, some joint mobilization, depending on what my intent is. Mm -hmm. And then if and when we determine that there's something else that needs to be done or we're not where we need to be, we'll discuss the benefits of the adjustment and then try it. But most other chiropractors would be like, no, that's crazy. You should adjust first. Mm -hmm. It just depends on your intent and uh, your relationship with like the different tools that you have in your, under your tool belt. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your approach and your method when someone comes to see you. So you're referring to doing an assessment. So you do a pretty mm. comprehensive assessment. And then based on what you see, how do you then determine what route you're going to take with somebody? Mm -hmm. So with my assessment, like the first thing that I want to do is like the health history is very important. Uh, and it's interesting because the more, the more I've learned about human psychology, the less interested I am in human anatomy. It's just been one of those things that you start to understand like how people think about certain things really has a big, it has a significant effect on the way movement occurs, the way the individual manifests like injuries or how injuries happen and all that kind of stuff. So what I try to do in the health history is to get a good understanding of, A, what are the individual's goals and expectations? Are they presenting to my practice because they have a particular pain? Um, are they presenting because there's a movement that they want to be able to do that they can't do yet? whether it's like a golf swing, whether it's a squat, whether it's like an overhead squat. So sometimes people will present with a particular movement related problem. The next most important thing is breaking down the narrative that individuals have about themselves. So a good example is like the perception of an individual's health. Mm -hmm. People will often kind of come into practice and say, you know, I got this bad shoulder or I got this bad hip. And so it's good to identify those parts of the body that the individual has developed a negative relationship with. They kind of catalog all that. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, we get a good understanding of the individual's perception of their health, the narratives that they tell themselves that could be like limiting narratives, but also what the individual's goals are. Mm -hmm. Once you have a good idea of that, the next step is the assessment. And my assessment over the years has like I know you, like you mentioned, it's a comprehensive assessment. Based on what it was before, like my assessment was pretty thorough. I've kind of slimmed it down because I've almost liberated myself with trying not to micromanage things in the body. Mm. And, it, and it has a lot to do with the way that I look at the body. So before I kind of looked at, looked at it as a bunch of Lego building blocks that need to be either like pushed back in or pulled back out. Kind of thing. And uh, now the way that I look at the body is kind of like an, a complex adaptive system. Looking at the body as a complex adaptive system has made me look not look at the as a body as something that I need to fix. But what I want to do is scan the body for any kind of given restraint. Mm -hmm. so what kind of constraints or what kind of limitations that are very obvious that the individual presents with that would be something that would limit the individual's ability to do their goal, right? So if somebody wants to be able to squat, like do an overhead squat, and they only have like 130 degrees of shoulder flexion that's a big limiting factor for them to be able to do what they want to do yeah so i assess those types of things find what the biggest obstacle is in their way for accomplishing what they want to be able to do mm -hmm. but then the other part of my assessment that i take a lot of pride in is to just look at how healthy the individual's body is and bring it to that person's attention like your ankle is fantastic like this moving really really well and it's symmetrical and we always want symmetry. So drawing attention to the individual's positive health is a mm -hmm. good thing because people will kind of come to your practice with a negative 
relationship with their body. And it's also because they think of their body as broken. And so by highlighting these parts of the body that are moving well, it gives the individual a sense of hope that you know, my body's not as broken as I, as I thought it was. And so a big part of my assessment is creating that framework that your body is healthy. Uh, what we have to do is change the narrative from my body or my hip's not a bad hip, but I'm investing time and energy into my body to be able to do what I wanted to be able to do. So the assessment process creates that entire framework, and then we create goals. What are our movement or treatment goals? And those are typically because of the individual they want to be able to do. And then from there, we just create a treatment plan. The mind is so unbelievably powerful when it comes to how our body will respond. So it's interesting that you're talking so much about the psychology of it and how we can create these limiting beliefs around ourselves. And, and a lot of the time, the narrative that we begin with, the narrative that we're telling ourselves is what comes true. So I love that perspective of thinking about how can I find positivity in what this person is experiencing? And how can I highlight some of those limiting beliefs that they have? Because yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, people don't seek you out because their body's feeling really good, right? So they're coming with normally an inherent problem or like you're saying something that right. they want to be able to do. So often that becomes like the ruminating thought that's in their mind and the controlling thought that's in their mind. So I love this concept of how you kind of reframe like their relationship, I guess, with the way that their body's moving or the way that, or how their body is in that moment in time. I think that's really cool. The two most common ways are the two reasons that people get injured the most? What are they? Great question. So if I had a really good answer for this, I would be a millionaire because I would be able to sell this <laughs> to like NFL teams, sporting organizations and all that. But it's always like in retrospect, it's easy to look at, look at a situation and create a narrative that's like, oh, you got injured because of this problem. But most commonly what I, what I find um, is something that presents itself like time and time again, is you'll have an individual who's like a, a nine to fiver. They sit for like eight hours a day and their body's used to the same posture position like day in and day out. So there's not a lot of variability in their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And then what ends up happening is that somebody will call them up and say, hey man, like you wanna go play volleyball or you wanna do a pickup game of basketball. And they'll often think back to like their high school days. Like, hey man, I, I used to play volleyball back in the day. So you know, maybe 15, 20 years have elapsed, but I can probably still jump up and spike a ball. And so they'll, with minimal warm up, minimal prep, they'll go join like a, a beer league kind of thing. And they'll go for that one movement and they'll feel a pop or a tear or something like that. And so oftentimes that's typically the narrative that happens that an individual is fairly sedentary for a long period of time. They try to do a movement or activity that they were able to do once upon a time. And they, they had this perception of their body that they can actually do it minimal warm-up minimal prep and then they go and hurt themselves that's yeah. probably the most common injury that i have uh, in my in my practice the second most common from that is typically from because i've worked with the canadian track and field team majority of what i see in that practice is like overuse type of injury mm -hmm. so individuals that are just like redlining their bodies and developing like muscle strains or tears that's on the opposite side of the spectrum Right, the first most common thing that I see is like underutilization of the body, minimal, minimal variability, uh, and they try to do something that they think that they can do. The other side is that they're just overusing, where they're really redlining the system and they're pushing themselves with minimal rest and recovery, and then something just ends up going. Yeah, 
Yeah, that makes sense. Either too much too soon or the fitness enthusiast or athlete that's like overtraining. That makes total yeah, sense. But what's, what's interesting about the two and just thinking about this now is the commonality between the two scenarios is the minimal variability. And, and that's something that I have um, emphasized now in my practice is that if you're, if you're doing the same thing every single day, your body becomes very accustomed to that. And you need some level of variability in your life, whether it's from like a lifestyle perspective, a training perspective, or any perspective, really. You need to have a healthy amount of variability. And so as a professional athlete, or if you're just an individual that works like a nine to five, finding ways to do things that are outside of your norm are going to be healthy for you. It helps kind of break that, that repetitive nature of what you're doing. And it provides a novel stimulus for the body to then have to adapt in a different way. Yeah, that's like going back to that question that people tend to ask trainers. What's the best exercise I could be doing right now? Whatever you're not doing, like pick something that you're not doing. And that's the best exercise for you in this moment. You were talking yesterday a little bit about the relationship between the cost of a movement for the body and the safety of that movement for the body. And I've never heard this perspective before. So I'm hoping you can speak to it a little bit for us, but you were saying it specifically in relation to like bending over and grabbing something and whether you're hinging from your hips or whether you're just kind of bending forward and flexing through your spine to pick something up. Can you describe Mm -hmm. this concept for us? Yeah. So when we, when we fall into a pattern of movement, typically your, your, your body will perform a movement that is the most efficient way to do that movement. Uh, and so if I want to pick something off the ground, sometimes it's the most efficient for me to just round to my back, keep my hips up in the air and pick something up. From a metabolic standpoint, that's the most cost effective way to do that movement because it's engaging the most minimal part of my body. Now, based off of spine biomechanical research, we understand that constantly repetitively reflecting your spine over multiple years with load in your hands predisposes individuals to disc herniation. Mm-hmm. So bending forward with your spine might be a cost-effective way of doing it. It's the most safe way to bend forward to pick something up. Mm-hmm. So you almost have to understand what are away from cost-effective strategies. What is a safe way to perform a movement? And we know if you leverage your hips, you can maintain more of a neutral spine. Your spine doesn't go through that same range of motion as much. So by utilizing these levers, longer levers, like your hips, your knees, you can perform a movement at a slightly higher metabolic cost but it's safer for you to do, especially if it's going to be something that you're going to be doing like repetitively month to month, year to year kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It explains yeah. why Does sometimes, yeah, totally. And it explains why our body sometimes defaults. Like we just default to bending over and grabbing something. Otherwise we never would because if it's not inherently as safe as hinging from your hips, we would never do that. Right. But we do because it's, a more efficient way for the body to move. It's really, it's a really interesting perspective. And what I also try to look at it as is that there's no, there's not going to be like one way that's the best way to do it, like mm. to pick something up, mm-hmm. but you want your body to have all the available options that it can choose from, mm-hmm. right? So the individual should know how to hinge from the hip. They should know how to flex from their spine. They should know how to bend with their knees so that the brain can then make the determination as to what is the best strategy given the, the, the certain context or the task at hand. Mm-hmm. Now, if the individual has there's a hip-related problem, the person can't hinge, that's a substantial limitation that the person doesn't have, 
right? So yeah. as long as a person has the most amount of flexibility to choose a different option, that's going to be a healthy system. And you're getting, yeah, it's getting back at that adaptability and vari- variability piece, which is Absolutely. sounding like it's so key when it comes to the way that we move. Yeah. Ricky, a lot of the times when I, like if I were searching for a practitioner, I always have a little bit of reservation of just like going to someone that I don't know their background. And the reason is because I think that sometimes practitioners who have a background in strength and conditioning or in training approach things a little bit differently. And I just find since training is such a big part of my life that I relate to someone that has a background in that and understands like what I'm trying to do and why I'm trying to do it a little bit more. So I'm curious how your background in strength and conditioning kind of informs the work that you do. Uh, my background in SNC pretty much shaped everything in terms of like how I view the body, um, the like, understanding the robustness of the human body. So most individuals, like most practitioners that don't have an SNC background and that they just like straight up therapists, Mm-hmm. they might not be able to understand the movement that the individual is supposed to be able to do or wants to do, sorry, mm-hmm. um, that can affect the individual's like, say, lifestyle. So uh, for, for me, what SNC has showed me mainly is that it gave, it gave me a framework of what the body is physically capable of doing, right? And so if an individual should be able to like hinge, should be able to squat, should be able to reach overhead, like all the fundamental movements, yeah. It allowed me to then evaluate those types of movements as a priority rather than looking at the body as a set of joints. Mm-hmm. But because I can appreciate that framework, my communication in terms of communicating with other practitioners, like other coaches or other therapists, has improved. Because now when an individual presents to my practice and says, I can't overhead squat, I don't tell them to stop overhead squatting. I tell them to substitute it with a different movement. Like let's break it down unilateral or let's look at the movement in its components to see what the limitation is. But because I can view the, the movement or view the body with a little bit more context, it's helped me understand uh, what people are presenting with, what their, pro- what their potential movement related problems are and how we can solve that. And without that background, I would be kind of like constrained to using bands or just like, certain passive modalities to help individuals overcome their pains and problems, mm-hmm. which we know doesn't have as much value if you incorporate more of like a holistic approach, like exercise management, load management. And that's something that's also pretty big in my practices. Most individuals will, will present themselves because they're not stressing their body enough. So if you don't have a framework or don't have a set of tools to give to them that they can understand how to stress their body in a responsible way, you can miss out on some significant opportunity there. Giving somebody a kettlebell or putting a kettlebell in someone's hand uh, is just one of the most empowering things if you know how to actually take them through a couple of different movements. But without that, without that tool, and if you're only using passive modalities, you're really missing out on a lot. Yeah, that makes total sense. Do you feel like your background in training and again, training you push yourself to use higher loads and you're pushing your capacity a little bit more than I guess you would in normal therapy. Do you feel like spending time in the gym and taking people through training programs, going through training programs yourself, like seeing the adaptation that can happen, do you Mm -hmm. feel like that gives you a better understanding of what's possible for this person? I feel like practitioners that don't, haven't ever had experience in training, it's just kind of like, it's always from bad to neutral. It's never like, Mm -hmm. let's go from bad to like 
making your body freaking function amazingly. You know, it's like a different right. range. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, even with my practice now, when I, when we typically discharge patients, when you say like you are now done in terms of your rehab, it's because like you've restored range of motion and you've restored quote unquote strength. Yeah. But understanding like what strength is and all the different kinds of strength, whether it's like static strength, dynamic strength, explosive strength, um, whether we're talking about speed, whether we're talking about power. And so all the different ways the body can express itself, all of that comes from strength and conditioning. Right? So if somebody comes in with a particular injury and they're an athlete and your, your barometer for success, your benchmark for success is restored range of motion, mm-hmm. I mean, that's going to happen no matter what. After a couple of even treatment sessions or even just natural history, like after a couple of weeks, range of motion will restore itself. Mm-hmm. But where you can really help an individual is to identify that this individual has difficulty developing or expressing strength in a particular position. How can we put that person into an environment that can bridge that gap so the body can be stressed in a particular way so that they can adapt, right? And the SNC really does equip, it has equipped me with the tools that can stress an individual for a particular reason, whether it's to develop speed, whether it's to, um, to uh, develop power, excuse me, uh, power or strength. It's given me those tools, which you don't learn that in like chiropractic college or physiotherapy college, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And we're not thinking about the underuse group of people. And now we're thinking about the people that are more on the side of athletes, they're training all the time. So we're now running the risk of potentially overtraining. We like to think of the fact that more is always better. I think as humans, we just assume that more sets, more reps, more intensity, more weight, more frequency during the week. Like we just think that if we can do more, it will be better. But in reality, of course, we know that the body has a certain capacity. So there, there are diminishing returns. Like at some point you're going to start hurting yourself more than you are helping yourself when you just keep adding volume and intensity. So from your perspective in SNC and as a practitioner, what is your perspective on finding that balance? Right. So it's a very difficult question to answer, mainly because with with any given individual, the context is going to be very important. Right. So finding out how much is enough for somebody really does depend on what they're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And for the average individual who is just training for the sake of training, the most important thing is always going to be safety. Are you able to train in a way that's not going to predispose you to injury? If you get injured, you're taking time away from training that can reduce your momentum. And that's something that can be pretty disheartening for a lot of people. So Mm -hmm. Uh, finding out how, how to be safe is the most important thing. And outside of that environment, like let's use the example of the power lifter. So somebody who is looking for maximum strength. They're looking for maximum strength in three particular lifts. When you go week to week from a training perspective, you'll be able to notice trends in the training environment or so in the training goals. And you can use a couple of different things here. You can use, uh, uh, people often use like rating of perceived exertion. You can use sleep quality. You can use how the individual just feels from a general like wellness perspective. Mm-hmm. But week to week, if you're if the individuals have uh, consistent injuries like month to month, they're having difficulty sleeping, um, their appetite suppressed, like all these types of things are starting to show themselves. Then the first thing you need to do is look at the load that the individual is exposing themselves to. Those are kind of the obvious ones, where if somebody has repetitive problems or repetitive issues that keep showing up. Take a look at the training plan and see if there's things that are presenting themselves that are just in excess and then dial it back. 
outside of that, for just general, like general population, finding out how much is enough is very challenging, mainly because people's egos kind of come in the way. Uh, because when people try something new for the first time, they want to just go all out. And I'm experiencing that now as like uh, getting into golf. Like I want to be able to drive my driver like 300 yards. I'm like barely scratching it at 200. But I have to understand that it's a process. It's going to take time. And so a lot of it has to do with that feedback between coach and practitioner or therapist and practitioner to try a dose of training, try a dose of movement or whatever it is, and then relay back to the, to the individual and say, mm -hmm. how did that feel? Mm -hmm. uh, did you feel confident? Did you feel like that was too much? Wait and see how they react to that. Yeah. Uh, and so in my practice, I often uh, refer to like corrective exercise or any type of therapy that you, we do as like a dose of therapy or a dose of medicine. We have to give the dose, we have to wait and see how the individual responds, and then we course correct. It's almost impossible to ever predict and determine ahead of time how someone is going to react. Uh, but we have a general understanding because we kind of see patterns of behavior. Right. But for the most part, give a dose of therapy or give, give a dose of training and see an individual response and have certain benchmarks that you're obviously trying to accomplish. And then you can reflect back. Did you hit the target or not? Or were you way off? Mm -hmm. And of course, correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Everyone's capacity for recovery is so different and so dependent on 1000 factors that could be changing at any time, like you've alluded to a bunch of them there. So yeah. yeah, that makes sense. It takes a certain level of awareness and a certain level of diligence to say, to reflect and say, hey, did that work? Did that not? What did I do? You know, I think some people just don't, just don't take the time. To, to really think, how am I feeling? Am I reaching where I want to go? Where am I trying to go? Like asking themselves all of those questions. So I think you bring up a lot of really important points there. Yeah, and it's not like an exact science either with like, mm -hmm. uh, like I've had, I've had patients that I've told them not to go and say like a 5K run. Like whatever you do, don't do that. Do like 1K instead. And then they come back and report back to me and they're like, yeah, I went for a 10K and I feel amazing. <laughs> and so you're kind of like pleasantly surprised that their body was able to adapt to some, through something that you thought was going to be detrimental for them. And so you're kind of like, wow, I'm glad that went well. But that happens sometimes, right? Yeah. So I, it's not an exact science, like working through progression. It's not going to always be clean, but we do our best. Yeah. And the second that you start seeing things in black and white and saying, for sure, do this, for sure, don't do this, for sure, this won't work for you, for sure, this will, like that's a problem. I think as trainers or practitioners or anyone seeing a practitioner, like that's a bit of a red flag because it's impossible to know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Ricky, you mentioned to me yesterday, you've been listening to a lot of podcasts. Are there any specific subjects that you've been diving into and learning a lot about lately? Mm -hmm. There are, <laughs> I would say like right now, I mean, the whole like social justice movement right now is like pretty big. So I've been digging a lot into that. It's awesome. something that I, I'm super interested in and just like, I, I just realized how uneducated I am on the topic. So that's definitely something that comes up time and time again. Sweet. I try to expose myself to different things that I'm like, I'm curious about that I might have a different opinion on. Mm -hmm. uh, and honestly, like uh, Joe Rogan's a great one for that because he brings on so many different guests, so many different perspectives that sometimes I'm listening to something that I'm like, I wholeheartedly this person's perspective, but I enjoy listening and hearing about why this person believes what they're believing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think from like a, a general perspective, the social justice stuff is, is huge right now. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of like, if we're thinking about my practice or clinical side of things, 
I think complexity or chaos theory or complexity science, this is like the, a big topic that I'm the most interested in uh, because it, it really is changing the way I look at the human body and it's changing the way I look at like how I interact with that patient. So it's something that I'm the most interested in right now. Cool. Can you tell us what chaos theory is? Yeah, well, I'll actually explain it from like a, a complex systems perspective. So like when we think about a system, if you think about like a laptop and a printer, it's like two systems or two parts of a system that work together to create an end result. You press print, paper comes out of the printer, that's a basic system. Um, and then that, that works all the way up to a complex adaptive system, which is what human beings are. And so we have multiple systems inside of the body that are reacting or interacting with one another with the environment to create a emerging set of behaviors. And so what's interesting about this is that when you think about a complex adaptive system, there isn't one thing that governs or that's executing the way that in, that organism is behaving. So uh, my original, the way I used to look at the body was that the brain controls everything, mm -hmm. right? Because the brain is a central governor. And now if you look at the system as, or if you look at the body as a complex adaptive system, we now understand that certain systems can interact with one another outside of the brain's control to create some kind of a behavior, mm, wow. um, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's absolutely, yeah. Like it's, it changes the way we look at movement. It changes the way we look at health in general, because we now understand that there's certain inputs that you put into the body that is going to have an effect that might be very substantial. Kind of like if you have um, an individual that has a, a bee sting, it's a very small input. But if they're allergic, they can have a prophylactic response and go into shock. Mm -hmm. So not prophylactic, anaphylactic shock, sorry. Anaphylactic, uh, that's and, right. Uh, yeah, and so like it's a very small input that can create a whole slew of symptoms. Whereas for another individual, they don't have any of those symptoms. So the input is very disproportionate sometimes to the actual output. And so looking at the body with that framework, it just really changes the way I interact with people and how I interact with my patients, um, how I prescribe exercise and pretty much everything that I do. Mm -hmm. Is it possible for you to articulate what it is about understanding that theory? What is different about the way that you're seeing the body? What is different about your approach? Yeah, so the, the most important way for me to articulate this is, is if, we, if we relate it back to injury. Uh, my preconceived notion of what how injuries would happen is that you have a, a physical limitation in the body. The body has to overcome this problem it fails to overcome the obstacle, and then you, you develop some kind of injury. Mm -hmm. It's a very simplistic way of looking at a very complex problem. Now, if you think about how injuries can happen, the, if we think about the organism uh, constantly reacting with the environment, and it's constantly reacting with like, internal constraints, and the internal constraint could be almost anything. It could be a joint limitation, it could be dehydration, it could be a hormonal profile that's maybe not optimal. So, all of those systems have to work together then to create a complex behavior, yeah. right? So if we, if we look at injury as something that is specifically a movement limitation, we're not capturing a host of issues or a host of determinants that can influence an injury, mm -hmm. which is why when people present to my practice with like chronic pain, they're often looking for a movement related solution. When oftentimes we look at, well, if we do a, a full catalog of the entire life, how can we make you the healthiest possible, right? Like, uh, how, how much sleep are you getting? How are your eating behaviors? Um, how well are you, how often are you drinking water? 
What is your perception of your own health? Like all those things feed into your body's perception of its own health, which would then feed into injury happening. So that's how it's impacted me the most, is that it's almost liberated me from looking at and trying to find movement-related problems, like that one joint that if we were to adjust or if we were to push back in would fix the person's problem. But it now allows me to take a look at the individual as a whole. What limitations do we need to overcome uh, that can really get things moving forward? Yeah, it sounds like it's really expanded your breadth of understanding of the interactions and the factors that are at play. Um, It's funny because it sounds like you've swung as far to the opposite end of the spectrum as you can when you think about what you were originally talking about with the beginnings of chiropractic care and how it was like, your just your spinal adjustment will now affect everything. It's like you've gone now like, wow, there are so many other factors. And yes, that's still a tool that you can use. And that can, you know, that can be a factor. But man, there's like, yeah, 1 million other things that you that you could consider. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's, I would say, from an your perspective, that's probably the easiest way to look at it. And that's why I've kind of liberated myself a lot from that, like trying to find that one thing. And so I communicate to people that we're, all we're doing right now is we're just trying to play with odds. Like, what are the odds of you having an injury? If you train, dehydrated, hungover, not eating well, uh, and like you're not warming up, your odds are slightly higher. So all we need to do is equip you with strategies so you can lower the odds, right? That's pretty much it. Awesome. Ricky, this has been awesome. We've almost flown through an hour already. Wow. Do you have any sort of like final thoughts, final bits of information that you would want to share with the listeners before we wrap things up? Yeah, just to finish off, I would say when seeking for care from like a practitioner or from a professional, trust is the most important thing. So I feel like if you can, if you can consult with like your own network and get a referral from, to, to see a practitioner, that's always going to be your best bet rather than just like Googling a practitioner in your area. Um, so consult with your network, find somebody that uh, you would trust and you're with your health, you're going to have far better outcomes than if you just kind of Google someone. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's really good advice. That's definitely been my experience. And I always, and I think you just, you just go in being more comfortable as well. When, when someone that you trust has referred you to someone, then your outlook on it, your mentality is just so, that much better. Right. And so your experience absolutely. is likely going to be more positive. Cool. You got it. Awesome. If people are interested in working with you and getting treatment from you or maybe just finding out more about you how would they go about doing that yeah right now i would say uh like instagram is probably the easiest way to to reach me uh my tag is dr ricky singh uh, so pretty easy to reach over instagram aside from that my email grsingdc at gmail.com um, but instagram is probably the easiest way to reach out to me cool and i will definitely link that up in the show notes Awesome. Thank you again so much. This conversation was, was really awesome. It went to a lot of places I didn't know it was going to go, but I love when that happens. So thank, thank you very you. much yeah, for sharing your time. I appreciate the invite. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for listening to How Do You Feel? If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Rate and review the podcast. Those ratings and reviews really do go a long way. I appreciate them all so much. Better yet, share the podcast with a friend or family member that you think would benefit from the messages that we talk about on how do you feel. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope everyone has a great week. 
And as always, remember, get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.